you take your Bibles, turn along with me to Titus chapter 1. Titus chapter 1. Leadership matters. Choosing the right leaders is crucial to the success of any venture and to the health of any organization. Choosing the wrong leaders can have devastating consequences. On March the 14th, 1989, the oil tanker Exxon Valdez ran aground on Bly Reef off the coast of Alaska, rupturing eight of its cargo tanks and spilling over 11 million gallons of crude oil into the once pristine waters of Prince William Sound. To this day, the wreck of the Exxon Valdez is considered one of the most destructive environmental disasters in history. But what caused the accident? Captain Joseph Hazelwood was in command on the night of the accident. He was the captain of the ship and a captain of great experience. But on that fateful night, the captain had been drinking and was drunk. Despite low visibility, the darkness of night, and a radar system that wasn't working properly, the drunk captain turned over control of the ship to an inexperienced third mate. The third mate that night made several, course, course, uh, several navigational miscalculations, inadvertently taking the ship off course, causing it to run aground on the reef and rupturing its hull. The environmental cost of those 11 million gallons of oil spilling into the sea are immeasurable but the financial cost to clean up that mess numbered into the billions. Leadership matters. The Apostle Paul was all too aware of this fact. And so that is his first priority in setting things right in the churches on the Isle of Crete. That is why Paul wrote to Titus. He told him to set things in order that remain. Look with me as I read from Titus chapter 1, verses 5 through 9. Let me read the text for us this morning. For this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains, and appoint elders in every city as I directed you, namely that if any man is above reproach, the husband of one wife, having children who believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion, for the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not fond of sordid gain, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, just, devout, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching so that he will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. This is the word of God. Let's pray together. Lord God, reinforce in our minds this morning the importance of Christ-like leadership within the church. Lord Jesus, the church is precious to you. You died to purchase it. You died to found it. You rose again to empower it. It is precious in your sight. You are Lord and head of the church. You have authority over the church. And therefore, you have every right to dictate how the church is to function and who is to lead your church. So Lord, help us to humble ourselves under your authority as Lord and head of the church. Teach us from your word, guide us in your truth, and most of all, show us yourself, Lord Jesus. We pray in Christ's name, amen.
God has ordained that the church be led by elders. The church shouldn't be led merely by some majority rule of a congregation. It shouldn't be led by some representative committee or board. And churches most certainly shouldn't be led by the squeakiest wheel. Sadly, churches often are led by majority rule, and the majority is often wrong. Churches are often led by man-made committees or boards or other human attempts at organizational structures. And far too often, churches are led by those who simply have the loudest voices. But it ought not be. Jesus is Lord and head of the church. And as Lord and head of the church, it is his right to tell us who should lead his church. Who should lead in each local church. Through his word, the Lord and head of the church has made it clear, abundantly clear, that it is Christ-like elders who should lead the local church. And that's what we're going to see in our text this morning. We're going to see three leadership pillars that must be in place in order for a church to be healthy and effective. Three leadership pillars that must be in place in order for a church to be healthy. The first leadership pillar is this, the priority of Christ-like leadership in the church. The priority of this leadership. In verse 5, we see Titus's mission while on the Isle of Crete. Paul has left him there to go elsewhere, and he's left him there with a purpose, with a mission to accomplish. He has left Titus there in order to set in order what remains. The churches on the Isle of Crete were not yet as they ought to be. There were some key missing elements in those churches. There were important things that needed to be put in place before Titus left and rejoined the Apostle Paul. And chief among these was the establishment of the right kind of leadership within the church. On the Isle of Crete, some of the people leading Christ's church were the wrong kind of people. Look at Titus chapter 1, verse 10. Just skip down the next verse from uh, where I ended reading. Titus chapter 1, verse 10, Paul says, There are many rebellious men, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, who must be silenced because they are upsetting whole families, teaching things they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain. These are people within the churches. These are people with leadership responsibilities and teaching responsibilities and shepherding responsibilities. And these are the wrong kinds of people with the wrong kind of character, saying the wrong kind of things, teaching the wrong kind of instruction, acting out of the wrong kind of motives and producing the wrong kind of fruit within the church. And it was a problem. A problem that Paul wanted Titus to address. It was a priority issue. In any situation, good leadership is key to the success and health of any organized group of people. Whether that organized group is a business or a community organization or a government or a school or a military force or even the most basic building block of society, a family. Leadership is key. No matter what the group is, without good leadership, morale will sink and the mission will suffer. Good leadership is key to the success and health of any group of people. And as that is true in general, it is especially true when it comes to the leadership of the local church. In order for a church to be healthy and to fulfill its God-given mission to make disciples of Jesus Christ, it must have good leadership. Now that begs the question, 
What does good leadership look like? What is good leadership in the context of a local church? How would we know if we have the right kind of leadership or not? Fortunately, we're not left to wonder or to guess at the correct answer. Jesus Christ is Lord and head of the church. And he has told us in his word what good leadership looks like and who it is he wants leading his church. And Paul shows us here in this text the priority of Christ-like leadership in the church by listing leadership as the very first thing that Titus is to set in order. There were a lot of things that needed to be addressed And the letter will cover many of those things. But right out of the gate, the very first thing, the priority issue is who is to lead Christ's church. This priority is further underscored at the end of verse 5 as Paul reminds Titus that he is to follow the orders he was given. Do what I told you to do as I directed you. Paul directed Titus to appoint elders. This word directed is often associated with military commands or imperial orders. So Titus was under order to set in place what remains and to take the first step in this process by choosing the right leaders. So Titus is under orders here from Paul to set things straight. And as we'll see later in this letter, the things that remain to be set straight are wide-ranging, and all of them are important. But of the greatest importance and of the first priority among them is to see to it that the right people are leading Christ's church, ensuring that each local church has the right leaders in place is to be Titus's first step and top priority in setting in order what remains. Titus was given the orders to revitalize these churches on Crete, to make them more healthy and more effective. And the first step in this revitalization process was to ensure that they had the right kind of people leading. A church may have great people, it may have great music, it may have a great children's ministry, it may even enjoy great fellowship, but without the right kind of people in leadership, leadership, the church will suffer and the church's mission of making disciples will suffer. That's the priority of Christ-like leadership in the church. Second pillar the position of Christ-like leadership in the church. Paul makes clear in this passage who it is that should be leading Christ's church. And he stipulates here that it is elders who are to lead Christ's church. The word elder refers to the position that Titus is to help place the right kinds of people into. The New Testament makes clear that there are two offices in the local church. Two and only two. There are elders and there are deacons. Elders lead and shepherd and teach the church and protect the church. Deacons serve the church and the elders in a variety of practical ways, meeting many everyday needs and allowing the elders to focus on their role of leadership. The qualifications for elders and deacons are almost identical. And the qualifications of both focus primarily on maturity, godliness, Christ-likeness, character. The biggest difference between the Qualifications for elders and deacons is that elders must be able to teach. They must know the scriptures, be able to teach the scriptures, and be able to refute those who contradict, as Paul will say in verse 9 of this chapter. 
Paul only mentions elders here. He doesn't mention deacons. That doesn't mean they didn't have deacons. It doesn't mean that deacons weren't important. It just means, again, that the priority was to focus on those who were leading the church and teaching the church and protecting the church and shepherding the church. Paul uses the term elder here in Titus to describe the position of highest human leadership in Christ's church. Scripture describes the same position of highest leadership in the local church by using three different terms. This one position is described with three different terms. Elder, overseer, and pastor or shepherd. These three terms are used interchangeably in the New Testament. They are synonymous, though not identical, in their emphasis. So there's a singular office of leadership in the church, referred to by the use of these three interchangeable terms. And each of these three terms helps us better understand the role. Overseer. Overseer has the emphasis upon the elder's position of leadership and authority. Their position of leadership and authority. The term elder, the emphasis is upon the leader's spiritual maturity. Elder. Pastor, the emphasis is upon the leader's task of feeding and leading and protecting God's flock. Overseer, elder, pastor. Three different terms describing a singular office within the church. That these three terms are interchangeable is illustrated in this very passage. Paul begins describing leadership in the church by using the term elder in verse 6. And then in verse 7, he switches seamlessly to the term overseer. For other examples of that, you can look at Acts chapter 20 and 1 Peter 5, where those three terms are used interchangeably. Although Paul doesn't use the term pastor in this passage, the task of pastoring or shepherding and feeding and protecting and leading God's flock is very clearly seen in verses 9 through 11. He says that elders must be those who hold fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching so that he will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. For there are many rebellious men, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, who must be silenced because they are upsetting whole families, teaching things they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain. You need pastors in there who will both teach the truth and refute error and protect the sheep from false teachers and others who would come and do harm to the church. So an elder is an overseer is a pastor. And a pastor is an overseer and an elder. Three biblical terms that all refer to one and the same office. Another observation that should be made about this position is that the Bible models a plurality of elders within each local church. In other words, every local church is to have more than just one elder. They need to have at least two. More is even better. Notice that Paul says that in every city where there is a local church, Titus was to appoint elders, plural, in each church. In every local church, there should be at least two elders, a plurality. The New Testament never specifies the number beyond specifying plurality. So what is clear is that there is to be a plurality of elders in the church. This plurality ensures that the church does not become an autocracy with just one elder ruling over the church like some kind of king or pope. Where leadership in the church is reduced to a single person, the temptation to abuse authority is too great. The wisdom needed for the job is too little. And the task of shepherding and protecting the flock is far too vast for one person. 
Instead, the leadership, authority, shepherding, and teaching are to be spread out among a plurality of godly leaders. Another observation to make about the position of leadership in Christ Church is that Christ Church is to be led by Christ-like men. In every passage that speaks of elders, overseers, or pastors, they are always described as men. The Bible is clear that God's plan for leadership, both in the home and in the church, is limited to men. A plurality of qualified, Christ-like men are to lead Christ's church. That doesn't mean that there is no place for any kind of female leadership within the church. Far from it. I thank God for our female leaders. They can outlead me any day of the week. Sometimes I can't find my way out of a wet paper bag. They do great. Our children's ministry, all led by women. Our women's ministry, led by women, do an amazing job of loving and shepherding and teaching the ladies of our church. That is not only permissible, it is needed. It is invaluable. Women are to lead ministry in the church. Ministry to women, ministry to children. Women, however, are clearly commanded not to be involved in leading or teaching men or mixed groups with men and women. 1 Timothy 2.12, Paul says clearly, again, writing to Timothy about how he is to lead the church there in Ephesus. He says, I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. And again, the context makes it clear. Paul is talking about the context of the local church. He's not talking about leading a business. He's not talking about leading in politics. He's not talking about any of that. We can have that discussion for another day at another time. We're talking about leadership within the home and within the church. And God's design is that men would lead in the home and in the church. Paul says that Titus is to appoint these elders in every local church in every city. Now some suggest that this means that Titus was going from church to church and himself handpicking these elders and conferring upon them the role of elder by his own authority, operating perhaps under Paul's apostolic authority. And that's a possibility. But this kind of apostolic appointing would be unique to the apostles and their close associates and not transferable to our situation. And likewise, the word appoint does not have to mean that. It's more likely that Titus would simply oversee the process of appointing men as elders. As each congregation examined those among them, cross-checking them against the qualifications that he's about to list here, and seeing those who rose to the level of leadership by their character, by their love of Christ and their love for the church, And in that process, the congregation would affirm those who are elders among them. All right, that's the position of Christ-like leadership. Finally, let's look at some of the particulars of Christ-like leadership in the church. The particulars. This is not the only list of qualifications for elders in the scriptures. Paul wrote a very similar list of qualifications for elders to Timothy in 1 Timothy 3. Peter also included some instructions for elders in 1 Peter 5, 1 through 5. But all the lists harmonize well together. You should also notice that these qualifications refer more to areas of character and Christian maturity than they do to skill or ability for the task. In looking for those who will lead Christ's church, we're not to be looking primarily at those who are the most gifted 
or at those who are the most popular or those who are the most handsome. Thank goodness for that. (laughs) Those with the most charismatic personalities. We're not to be looking for those who happen to have the most money or those with the most influence in society or those with the most business experience or anything like that. In a typical organization, even for Christian nonprofits, the usual method for choosing board members is to choose good, godly people with lots of money who likely have not only a lot of business savvy, but also a lot of resources to help fund the mission. And that's understandable. I'm not even criticizing that. While that may be fine for the Christian nonprofit, that is not the way the church is to choose its leaders. When it comes to choosing its leaders, godly Christ-like character is what matters most. So what are the qualifications for an elder? Paul shares a list of qualifications here. It's very similar to the list of qualifications in 1 Timothy 3, but not completely identical, which probably means that Paul does not intend for either of those lists to be comprehensive, but rather generally descriptive of the kind of person that you should be looking for to lead you in Christ's church. I should also say that these are very practical descriptions of what it means to be like Christ. You may be sitting here today and going, well, I get that this is an important message for the church corporately, but this really doesn't have a lot of application to me. Oh, yes, it does. Paul is describing here essentially what it looks like to be a godly Christian, a mature Christian, to be Christ-like. People like to wear little bracelets around their wrists that says, what would Jesus do? This is it. This is what Jesus would do. Jesus would live this way. Jesus did live this way. Jesus manifested these character traits and he did so perfectly. And if you and I want to be Christ-like, whether you're a man or a woman, These are the kinds of qualities we ought to be seeking to cultivate within our lives. Just as we ought to seek leaders who are Christ-like and share these characteristics, so we ought to be pursuing that personally, growing in each of these areas. Reading these qualifications tells us not only what our leaders should look like, but what a mature Christian looks like. And therefore, the kind of Christian we all aspire to be. One other word of clarification. Perfection in these areas is not the standard. Elders will occasionally fall short in every one of these areas, just about. Elders will sin. Believe me, I know. I work with them. And they work with me. I sin every day. How about you? The point here is not the perfection of the life, but the direction of the life. The point is not that elders are to be perfect Christians but rather that they are to be exemplary Christians. If the standard was perfection, there would be no one left to choose from. No one would be left standing. All would be disqualified if the standard was perfection. Paul is seeking to describe here simply what a mature, exemplary, Christ-like leader looks like. And he says, all right, Here it is. This is what Christ-likeness looks like. Now, scan your congregation and find these Christ-like elders among you. 
Paul lists 15 qualifications here. And I'm only going to spend 10 minutes on each one. (laughs) 15 descriptions of what Christ's likeness looks like. We're going to get to three of them today. Lord willing, we'll do the other 12 next week. You just, I heard the sigh of relief. (laughs) All right. So what does Christ's likeness look like? First of all, it looks like you live a life that's above reproach. And again, for Christians, this is what we ought to be seeking, all of us, male, female, boy, girl, man, woman, to be above reproach. That's a goal in life. That's what godliness looks like. That's what Christ's likeness looks like. But what does it mean? Well, this description above reproach is a general umbrella description that really you could place all the other qualifications under this overarching description. 1 Timothy 3, Paul uses a similar descriptor, blameless. Not quite the same, but very similar. Here he says they're to be above reproach. Above reproach, first of all, refers to a Christian's spiritual status before God. We are justified in God's sight as Christians, are we not? Hallelujah. I've been declared righteous in God's sight. All of my sins have been paid for. All of my sins, past, present, future. Getting a little feedback here. I don't know if it's this monitor. You maybe just... All of my sins have been paid for. Everything is right between me and the God who made me. And nothing can change that. Nothing can alter that. In God's eyes, I am above reproach. The enemy tries to reproach me. The enemy is a liar. He's an accuser. But he's unsuccessful. Because I have been declared righteous in God's eyes through the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross and his resurrection. Colossians 1, 21 through 22 gets to this. And it says, And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet, He has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. If you're a Christian here today, let me tell you, you've already crossed the finish line of being beyond reproach. In terms of your spiritual status, your spiritual standing before God, you are blameless and beyond reproach. So fundamentally, an elder's got to be saved, right? Oh, Lord, help us. We got to start there. But here in Titus, it likely has a double meaning, not only referring to our standing before God, but also our standing before a watching world. The way we live our lives. The elder is to be above reproach in the church and in the community in the sense that they can't be credibly accused of some kind of unrepentant pattern of sin or a life of rampant hypocrisy. They will exemplify what it looks like to be a Christian. This description of being above reproach is so important that Paul lists it twice. He repeats himself in the space of just two verses. Look at verse 7. For an overseer must be above reproach as God's steward. He adds this idea that an elder is to be above reproach understanding that they are God's steward. That's a way of seeing the world. That's a way of seeing everything. That you are a steward of what God has entrusted to you. Steward here, God's steward, 
further defines what above reproach means. An elder is to live above reproach as God's steward. The elder's entire life is viewed as a stewardship from God. The word steward is a word that is used of a household servant who manages the affairs of his master. The steward understands that he doesn't own anything. None of this is his. It all belongs to the master who has entrusted it to his care. I was a bank teller. And lots of cash went under my nose on a given day. I was slow, but I was accurate. That won't surprise a lot of you. (laughs) I didn't own any of that money. None of it was mine. At the end of the day, I didn't get to take it home. They didn't say, help yourself to what's left in the till. We've got plenty. No, I had to be very careful. At the end of the day, I had to count out my drawer. I had to give an accounting of what I'd done that day, what money had exchanged hands, the money that had come in, the money that had gone out, and it better all add up. Why? Because it wasn't mine. I'm a steward. I'm simply stewarding that which belongs to another. And that's got to be the elder's mindset for all of his life, for everything in his life. It's not his. It doesn't belong to him. My life is not my own. My home is not my own. My wife and children are not my own. The church is not my own. All that I have, life and breath and everything has been given to me, entrusted to me as a gift from God and I am but a steward. And it is that steward mentality that says, look, I can't just do whatever I want whenever I want. No, I'm a steward. I serve my master and that mentality helps to ensure that the elder lives above reproach. So the elder is to live a life above reproach, a life that is viewed through the lens of a steward who humbly acknowledges that nothing belongs to him and that he has but one job, to be faithful and trustworthy with all that God has entrusted to him. Godly elders understand the church doesn't belong to them. To do with whatever they want. The church belongs to Christ. And we are merely stewards of that which belongs to him, of that which was bought with his own blood, of that which he died for. And therefore, our job as stewards is to simply be faithful. To be Christ-like is to be above reproach. Certainly, our Lord Jesus was above reproach. Was he ever accused? Yes. Credibly accused? No. People made all kinds of accusations against Jesus and still do. None of them credible. None of them sticking. So the elder is to live a life of Christ-like living that is above reproach as a steward of what God has entrusted to him. Secondly, the, the elder is to be the husband of one wife. It's interesting that Paul begins having listed the umbrella qualification. When he starts getting into the nitty-gritty, he starts in the home. He starts at home. Part of being above reproach is having a home life that is exemplary of a Christian home. 
A man's ministry in the home is a proving ground for his ministry in the church. 1 Timothy 3, 4 and 5, Paul says this, of the elder, he must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? Makes sense. If he can't be faithful in a smaller thing with fewer people, how's he going to be faithful with a bigger thing with a lot more people and a lot more moving parts? If a person can't lead a small group of individuals with whom he spends the most time and with whom he has the best relationships, how will he ever lead a large group of people with whom he spends less time and with whom he doesn't know as well? And so Paul begins at home, enlisting the leadership qualifications of an elder. Literally, is to be a husband of one wife, a man of one woman, a man belonging to one woman, another way of saying it. That's what it says, but what does it mean? Well, there have been a few different views put forward as to what it means. Some have said it means that an elder must be married. It seems to contradict Paul's teaching on the usefulness of singleness in ministry. Paul himself may have been disqualified if that was the case. Others have said, well, he must have only One wife his entire life. That seems to contradict Paul's teaching on the propriety of remarriage in certain circumstances in other passages of Scripture. Others have said, well, it prohibits only polygamy. Well, it certainly does prohibit polygamy. And that was not uncommon in Paul's day in certain places with certain customs. But that seems too narrow. One could violate personal purity without necessarily having more than one wife. And polygamy really wasn't that widespread. So why would Paul call it out here? Probably the best understanding of it is that the elder must be faithful to his wife in the marital and sexual realms. The elder is to be pure. He is to be a one-woman man. To only have eyes for his wife and to keep both his physical life and his thought life pure. This seems the best understanding of Paul's statement here. But what about divorce? Can a divorced person ever serve as an elder? Well, what if they were divorced before they became a Christian? As many of the Christians in these churches would have been, divorce was rampant. You could divorce your wife for almost any reason or no reason at all. I guess things haven't changed a whole lot. How would you expect an unbeliever to act? Would there be some messy stories in their past? Sure there would be. Such were some of you. But you were washed. So there would have been Christians within these churches who had experienced divorces as unbelievers Would they be forever disqualified? Perhaps few, if any, men on the Isle of Crete would have qualified if the qualification included their lives before salvation. But what if they were divorced after becoming a Christian? Well, there's all kinds of circumstances and 
details to that, and it's certainly not desirable, but, but depending upon the circumstances and whether or not it was a biblical divorce, I don't believe it is absolutely necessarily ruled out from the Scriptures. We want to be conservative with God's Word. And that's a good impulse. That's a good desire. But we don't want to make man-made rules and go beyond the Scriptures in what it states about the qualifications. The point Paul is making here is that if a man is to lead the church, he must be pure, both in thought and deed. And if he is married, he'd better have eyes for only one woman, his wife. Thirdly, children who are faithful. This is all under the particulars of the role of elder. Children who are faithful. Paul goes on to say that the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward, not... Uh, sorry, back in verse 6. Having, uh, being the husband of one wife, having children who believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion. Having children who believe. Now there's considerable disagreement about that phrase, children who believe. What does that mean? The Greek word there that is used is pistis. It's the normal word for faith, but it can also mean to be faithful, to be trustworthy, to be reliable. And so it can refer to a child who follows his father's lead and is respectful and obedient while in the home. Now those who take the word to mean believe have understood this to mean that an elder's children all have to be saved in order to be qualified. But that seems very unlikely to me. That the only way for a man to qualify to be an elder in Christ's church is if all his children also happen to be elect Something that no elder has any control over whatsoever? We know that God's choice of people for salvation before the foundation of the world was not based on anything in them or on, based on anything in their parents, but only according to God's gracious choice and sovereign will. Furthermore, in the parallel passage in 1 Timothy, Paul does not list a requirement of the salvation of children, but rather simply states that for a man to be qualified as an elder, he must keep his children under control with all dignity. So the idea is order in the home. It's not necessarily that every child is saved, though, Lord willing, every child in an elder's home will be. But that those children honor their father, respect him, Obey and follow his leadership while they're in the home. That seems to also be the meaning here in Titus 1.6. For Paul, in the same verse, further explains what he means by believe by saying that the elder's children aren't accused of rebellion or dissipation. While in the home and under the father's authority, they aren't living wild lives of disobedience and reckless rebellion. In other words... The elder is managing his own household well. And so it's the unified view of the elders here at Cross and Crown that the phrase children who believe should be understood as children who are faithful, meaning children who are obedient and honoring to their parents, not accused of dissipation or rebellion while they are under their parents' authority in the home. Those are just the first three qualifications. Leadership matters. And leadership must begin at home. Doesn't, how, doesn't matter how smart the guy is, how persuasive he can be, how good a speaker he is, how popular he may be. If he doesn't love his wife well, if, he, if, if his children don't honor him and respect him and obey him while they are under his roof, then he has no business being an elder in the church. If a man doesn't lead well at home, there's no reason to think he's going to lead well at church. 
Leadership matters. And as we've seen this morning, the home is the proving ground for leaders in the church. Jesus Christ loves the church and he gave himself up for it. Jesus Christ is Lord and head of the church. And as such, he has every right to say who should lead his church. And may we, as the church, listen to and obey the Lord and head of the church and choose the right kind of people to lead Christ's church. Let's pray together. Our Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you for the church. That you died to give life to. We're a part of that. We're part of the universal church, all believers everywhere. But that church is invisible. We can't see it. We can't go there. We can't visit it. We can't experience it. But you also gave us the local church, the visible expression of your universal, invisible church. And we can go there. We can come here. We can worship together. We can experience it. We can love one another and know all the joys of fellowship together. Lord, we know how fragile unity in the church can be, especially if it's not led by the right people, the right kind of people. You've made it clear in your word who is to lead your church. Lord, we submit ourselves once again to you as Lord and head of the church believing that what you have revealed to us about your church and who should lead it is best for us and will result in our greatest flourishing as Christians, as believers, and as the body of Christ. Help us to obey you. Help us to love you more and love one another more. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.